I'm Tony Remus, and this is Tony Talks Back. Ah, democracy. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The will of the people. Direct control over society's destiny. Certainly preferable to the alternative, right? What is the alternative to democracy, exactly? The short answer is, there isn't just one. The slightly longer answer is, it's usually some form of hell. Whether it be a small number of oligarchs pulling the strings, or a single ruler with absolute power, tyranny, of the minority, is the prevailing aspect of non-democratic states. Military coups, ruthless dictatorships, and needlessly cruel laws and crackdowns characterize a surprisingly sad number of nations we see even today. In practical terms, democracy is necessary for a happy, healthy society. Granted, we didn't always have the luxuries we have today of, say, modern medicine or running water or agriculture. There is no law in a hunter-gatherer society because laws don't apply when the rule is that of the jungle. With the advent of agriculture, though, it became legitimately possible to build an empire on a patch of fertile land. This, of course, presents two choices to someone in that period of time. Either spend an eon building and developing your own land in hopes that your descendants will reap their rewards, or just hop over to the next plot and conquer it through force. And thus, we have soldiers, and thus, we have armies. If you had land, and if you could defend it, you could effectively govern your land and anyone who happened to live on it. This proved to be one of the keys that set humanity apart from the rest of the jungle. Monarchies and feudal lords had the power to control society enough that it wouldn't just decay with the next generation. And not only did it not just decay, but it often grew and flourished, sometimes incrementally, and not always forward. But over time, these little lands grew into big lands. And well, would you look at that, we now have civilization. But humans aren't generally satisfied to stop there. As much as we appreciate a full belly and a warm fire, we also desire the ability to forge our own destiny, as it were. No matter how talented you were at something, no matter how much you desired to be a thing, the absolute monarch of your time could put a stop to your antics, and there wouldn't be a single thing you could do about it. There's a certain existentialist angle to consider here. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about the look, or le regard. I probably butchered that, I'm sorry, I don't speak French. The look is that which other people give to us, such as a monarch would give to their subjects. If you are a subject of the crown, you probably don't think of yourself as some peasant. You think of yourself as a father, or a mother, or a juggler, or a horseback rider. The essence of what you are is determined by you, but the crown can decide otherwise. The crown could say, no, 
you are a field laborer, and that is all you will ever be. You might never get to be your authentic self, your horseback rider. None of the hopes and dreams of humanity would be able to come true if we hadn't built civilization first. But once we had it, people naturally revolted against this idea that someone else can determine who you are. The English crown, and later many other monarchies, would observe that the winds were changing. There are few things that scare a monarch more than an uprising. So monarchies such as Great Britain devolved their power into mixes of absolute rule and republic-style systems, representing a more broad group of people than just the crown. These would become known as constitutional monarchies, with a set of laws that not even the crown could break, and can only be changed with the consent of the larger government. But even that isn't enough for some people. The idea of a class being superior, noble bloodlines and the like, and the circumstances of one's birth determining what you can be, again makes the existential cry for individual liberty. What could we have instead? Well, how about anarchy? No government, no monarch, no rules whatsoever. But generally, we know anarchy is just an academically planned out law of the jungle system. There is no system of anarchy that works. Not one that functions to develop civilization, or even one that prevents its downfall. We need laws, of some sort, that are codified, but yet are not arbitrarily created and enforced by a single entity. If we want to have any of the comforts we enjoy, in society. Good thing America invented democracy in 1776. Just kidding, it was developed as most things were in ancient Greece. Athens, specifically, had a rather robust and boisterous assembly of citizens allowed to vote directly on issues. The numbers vary by year, of course, but we do know thousands of men and only men. Unfortunately, ancient Greece was not particularly ahead in gender equality. Thousands of men gathered on the central Athenian hill to take part in one of the world's oldest democracies. Now, keep in mind that the people vote directly on issues. In other words, it's a direct democracy. There's an old adage, strength in numbers. This is just obviously true when it comes to democracy. If you can convince enough people to be on your side, there is little you couldn't accomplish in such a system. If you can't yet see where the problem might be, let me elaborate. Democracy killed Socrates. The people of ancient Athens voted to end the life of a man who might be the most influential person to have ever lived. Bold statement, I know, when Jesus was a thing, but it's doubtful Greek philosophy would have developed in the direction it did without Socrates. And philosophy is the Western world. We wouldn't have what we have today without philosophy. What was Socrates' reward for his relentless questioning mind and unyielding search for truth? 
hemlock ingested orally. Not a pleasant way to go, by most accounts. This was an injustice. A moral panic drummed up by demagogues convinced the majority that Socrates was an evil man, corrupting the youth and blaspheming the gods. Were the charges legitimate? No, and Socrates proved otherwise, but mob justice does not care. This is the other end of the spectrum. This is tyranny of the majority. Become a patron of Tony Talks Back and get exclusive access to bonus content and a private RSS feed where you can download episodes and listen on your favorite podcast platform ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash tonytalksback or click on the link down below. Following the death of Socrates, there are more complex arguments against democracy. They come as many things do from Plato, specifically Plato's Republic. The Republic is probably Plato's most controversial work, and also his most famous. In it, Plato proposes, among other things, the idea of a philosopher king. The philosopher king rules society in lieu of traditional democracy. Philosophers are quite literally lovers of wisdom, derived from the name, and therefore are the best equipped to rule justly, no matter what the people want or say they want. The common rabble of a society are not typically the most knowledgeable about matters of justice and such, so why would we put them in charge of determining what is just? Now, the clear problem with a philosopher king is in determining who exactly qualifies as philosopher king. In Plato's time, it was seen as degrading to run for office. Those in political positions were appointed by others. They didn't campaign in the sense of politicians today. And naturally, a philosopher king should be someone who seeks wisdom, not power. As Douglas Adams wrote, anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. And to add another layer of complexity, scholars can't agree to what extent Plato was advocating for a literal change to society, a literal philosopher king. Throughout the Republic, the theme is to find the meaning of justice. Some think that Plato's analogies are only that, analogies for the purpose of seeking justice. This theory holds up when considering that Plato's utopian city is anything but. But there is also the historical context in which Plato and Socrates lived. Throughout ancient Greece, the people routinely saw democracy fail. The people made unjust decisions, notably with the trial and execution of Socrates. That alone may be actual argument enough for a philosopher king. No matter how you slice the cake, the death of Socrates as we understand it today feels like a great tragedy. A Greek tragedy, if you will. But how does one avoid the tyranny of the majority without replacing it with the equally undesirable tyranny of the minority? In a simple, direct democracy, if the majority vote to put someone to death, then their vote is law. It doesn't work to just enact laws saying no one can be voted put to death, as a majority could change that very law. 
Now, to give credit where it's due, in certain situations, the Athenians did have advanced democratic proceedings involving quorum or a supermajority. That's not believed to have been the case at the trial of Socrates, though. We don't know the exact number of jurors that sentenced Socrates to death, but estimates put it around 500 jurors total and a little over 250 that voted hemlock. Imagine for a minute being so hated that over 250 people vote to end your life. And this was all face to face. You couldn't help but stare at the man you despised enough to literally murder. Interesting side note, but there was a Norwegian named Vidkun Quisling during the Second World War collaborated with the Nazis to rule the German-occupied Norway. This, of course, pissed a lot of people off. The man was apparently so hated that after the war, Norway reinstated the death penalty after abolishing it some decades prior, just to kill him and a few other Nazi conspirators. War criminals and genocidal maniacs aside, the Athenian system, on the whole, is not very attractive in the modern world. It served its purpose, but it's too arbitrary. There's nothing set in stone, so to speak, and demagogues rule the stage. At least with a monarchy, the king's word is law. You can count on at least that much. And here is where Americans can really count their blessings for the Founding Fathers. Whatever gripes you might have about any particular aspect of the American political system, and there are legitimate concerns, our governmental organization is nothing short of ingenious. Everyone tends to recognize July 4th, 1776 as the beginning of America, the country. But the true birth of the United States of America was on March 4th, 1789 when the Constitution of the United States became the law of the land. See, our United States has never been a direct democracy. We elect representatives who democratically vote on issues while representing the people that elected them. The people do not have direct control. Our system in the United States is actually a republic, a constitutional republic also called a representative democracy, not a direct democracy. The Constitution itself is a compromise. A compromise institution, if you will, as coined by C.G.P. Gray. Back in the Tea Party days, there were states with more and less people living in them, just as there are now states like California and Wyoming, at opposite ends of the population spectrum. If every issue needing a societal decision were to be voted on by literally everyone in the country, five-ish states could determine the outcome regardless of the wishes of the other 45 states. And I'm not saying that as if it's a good thing or a bad thing, it simply is a fact. And it's also a fact that the Founding Fathers did not want that to be the case. That is, the Founding Fathers did not want mob rule, nor for a few states to hold all the cards in the Union. So we have two Houses of Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, all of which is standard knowledge and rather boring of me to say, but what they represent 
is, in the case of the Senate, the power for states to vote on equal footing with each other regardless of population. And in the House, proportional representation based on population. Tyranny of the minority and tyranny of the majority face each other in every session of Congress. And that's only one branch of the government. The bigger game is played out by the system of checks and balances. In order to get anything done, the divisions of power between state, local, and federal levels have to generally agree on it. And what's more, we have different branches of government at these levels that perform different functions, but all also serve to diffuse power out of the hands of a single person or entity. The executive branch, currently chaired at the federal level by Donald Trump, doesn't have all that much law-creating power. Congress creates laws, but can't do much to enforce them. And our court system decides what those laws actually mean, or if they are legitimate laws in the first place. So not only do the people not get to vote directly on laws, but even the people they can choose to represent them have less power than is commonly realized. I find it amusing and a little sad that people are shouting to abolish the Electoral College because it doesn't perfectly represent the direct votes of the people. That is the entire point of the system that was set up. The Electoral College is, like all other things in our government, a compromise. If you think that the people should directly determine the president, that's fine, you're entitled to your opinion. But you need better arguments than the will of the people. As already outlined, direct democracy has its objections. Learn them. You're going to need all the help you can get, because the path to abolish the Electoral College is perfectly clear. Also laid out in the Constitution, the process for a constitutional amendment. Approval of both houses of Congress by two-thirds vote, then ratified by the states. You won't get those votes with circular arguments. Just saying. Anyway, that's probably a good enough ending. Thanks for listening to the first episode of this new adventure. I love democracy, but if there's ever a vote to determine a philosopher king, throw my name in there, would you? I'm Tony Remus, this has been Tony Talks Back. If you enjoyed the show, like, subscribe, review, wherever you're listening. Share it with your friends and become a patron on Patreon or consider a one-time donation on PayPal. Take it easy.